0: And I invite you to open your Bible to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. We have a brief text before us. Mark 11, verse 22 through 25. It's a bit of a, an addendum on the previous passage. So for sake of context and momentum, I'll start reading uh passage we previously looked at uh, in verse 12 of chapter 11. Uh, right after the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, uh, verse 12 of chapter 11 picks up the story, but we'll focus on verses 22 uh, to 25. Mark 11, verse 12. On the next day... When they had left Bethany, Jesus became hungry, seeing a distance, in the distance a fig tree in full leaf. He went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. And then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, it is, not writ- it is, it- is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den." The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they would go out of the city, and they were passing by in the morning. They saw the fig tree with withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And now our text And Jesus answered, saying to them, "'Have faith in God. "'Truly I say to you, "'Whoever says to this mountain, "'Be taken up and cast into the sea, "'and does not doubt in his heart, "'but believes that what he says is going to happen, "'it will be granted him. "'Therefore I say to you, "'all things for which you pray and ask, "'believe that you've received them,' And they will be granted you whenever you stand praying. Forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who's in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. This is the very word of the living God. Part of college life is scavenging for food. No longer fed by your mama College students are often found looking for something to eat. When I was in college, it was often the frontier restaurant. On-campus dining, even if you go to UCLA and eat of the sumptuous feasts, eventually starts to lose its luster. And you wander off campus to local enclaves. And the go-to for the University of New Mexico, the Harvard of the Southwest, is uh, the Frontier Restaurant a cavernous place uh, full of southwestern cuisine and and portraits of John Wayne? There's no place in the world like it. Open uh, when I was in college, all night long in Joe Biden's America. Not as long, but um, in, in those those days of national prosperity, it was open all night, and there was it was just full of students studying and eating. And, but even that, you know, you needed variety. In your life. And there was a place to eat that was even cheaper. And I remember going there with my kind of tattered copy of Virgil's Aeneid with lots of translation work due and eating unlimited chips and salsa at a place called Bandito's Hideaway. Bandito's Hideaway. I was reminded of that hole-in-the-wall place. Apparently, it's still there on Central Avenue. I googled it. When I was thinking about this passage before us, verses 22 through 25, Jesus' seemingly disconnected words after what we saw with the triumphal entry and Jesus surveying the temple and then returning to Bethany. And then cursing that fig tree and then cleansing the temple with the whips and the overturning of the tables and the denunciation of the religious rulers and driving everyone out and then returning to the fig tree and seeing it die. And before Jesus gives this speech on his authority, which makes sense in the context because the chief priests and scribes were plotting his death in verse 18 on this, the final week of his earthly life are going to ask him, how dare you, which is an appropriate question. But Jesus' little sermon here, or explanation, I didn't include it last week because I thought it's worth our attention. And what made me think of Bandito's hideaway, Bandito is Spanish for thief, bad guy, I don't know. is that's what Jesus called the temple. He called it Bandito's Hideaway. I don't know what the Riena Valera says in its translation, but in verse 17, it's a robber's den. A robber's den. The temple had become a den of robbers, a hideout for thieves. Contrary to the popular interpretation of most preachers, Jesus was not upset because The buying and selling needed checks and balances. Jesus wasn't upset about exorbitant prices or dishonest dealings. It wasn't a financial concern that Jesus was incensed by. And you've all heard that kind of explanation, right? Like bad prices on doves, the exploitation of the poor, something like that. It's alien to this text because Jesus drives everybody out. He drives out the sellers and the buyers. And if it was an issue of the sellers are are doing it wrong, then the sellers should be whipped and let the buyers in. But he drives them all out. And the work that they were doing in the temple marketplace courts was a necessary work to fulfill Levitical law. But Jesus whips them all. Jesus was incensed because the temple no longer had God at the center. Yahweh had been walking among them incarnate for three years, and now the very week of His sin-bearing once-for-all atonement, it's just business as usual in the temple. And that, to our Lord, is highly problematic. That is what's unacceptable to God. And so Jesus goes on a rampage And acting out the destruction of the temple, the closure of the temple, the end of its dealings, borrowing words from the prophet Jeremiah showing them that this didn't need a price adjustment but that they were missing the point entirely. Their worship was in vain because they ought to have been worshiping Him Because dens are not where robbers do their robbing. It's where thieves dwell. It's their hideout. The temple was no longer a house of prayer for all nations, but instead had become banditos' hideaway. Jesus' indictment of the temple could not have been more severe. He's not cleansing the temple or reforming its practices. He's abrogating it. He's replacing it to use our words, the temple has been canceled. Jesus is showing its obsolescence and providing a parable of its coming destruction. The temple has moved away from God's original intention. It was intended to be the place where heaven met earth and God fellowship with his people and the necessity of atonement was demonstrated there as the blood of lambs and Sacrificial animals was shed. God's people, Israel, were intended to be a beacon of light to all nations, and their temple was to be a place for all nations to find Yahweh and to pray. And like that fig tree, Jesus is saying that the temple is cursed and dying like those leaves on that fruitless fig have withered from the root up. He looks around the temple. He cleanses the temple and He condemns it as belonging to the old covenant, which is passing away. And Jesus shows that a new order will replace the old, that the shadow will finally be replaced by reality, that the promise will become fulfillment. And Jesus redirects the shock that Peter has over a tree dying at the command of Christ to greater realities to come. And so Jesus' little sermon about faith and prayer and forgiveness is actually an exposition of the new order of things if the temple is to be no more and if the people's faith has been redirected from being in God to being in liturgy and tradition and ritual and they've thought too much of the place and not enough of the the person the place is supposed to be directed towards Jesus is going to show his disciples in this brief little kind of transitional sentence of a sermon what this new order is all about. And I I think there's four things that are noteworthy in these few verses. So let's look at them one by one. Verse 22 tells us the new order is based on faith. The new order is based on faith. Based on faith. Verse 22, Jesus answered saying to them, have faith in God. That's Jesus's response to Peter's flabbergast Look, the tree died. <laughs> I mean, it's a pretty ordinary statement. Any of us would have said it, right? Oh, neat. It works. Because Jesus had cursed it the day before. And some disciples noticed when Jesus cursed it, it immediately started to wither. Just a little something happened right at the curse. Matthew's account notes that. But now the whole thing is dried up and dead. And Peter's kind of stunned by the deal. And so I love that Peter's impressed with something so ordinary. A manifestation of the supernatural that if you could put it on a classification system, it's like, I mean, this isn't parting the Red Sea. This isn't creating out of nothing. This is like Roundup, right? It's a little bit of weed spray. This is just like a small scale miracle. This isn't feeding 5,000. This is killing one tree. And Jesus says, so that's impressive to you, huh? Jesus killed a tree. Well, believe God. Have faith in God. And by directing Peter towards this kind of surprised moment in his expression to a greater manifestation and an encouragement of the centrality of faith, Jesus is trying to show him that there's far greater things to be accomplished by believing Verse 23, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, does not doubt in his heart, but believes what is going to happen, it will be granted to him. You know, it's it's pretty common in the Old Testament to have this mountain talk. This mountain talk about you know, moving mountains or, or splitting mountains. The prophets use this terminology all the time. You know, a mountain being moved by faith is far more impressive than a tree being withered by the voice of Jesus. But this isn't just a parable about impossibility or unlikeliness or lesser to the greater. Jesus says, This mountain. Remember where he's standing. In clear view, as their approach to the city and their withdrawal from the city would have been the mountain on which God placed the temple. This mountain, it says. Not a mountain, this mountain. That's Mount Zion. And if you think it's impressive that Jesus killed a tree, wait until He moves an entire mountain. When He displaces Herod's opulent temple that the scribes and Pharisees have occupied and turned into a cantina for crooks. Because the faith that withered that fig is the same faith that's going to be asked of every single one of Jesus' disciples in far more dire circumstances. They're going to have to have faith as Jesus is betrayed and arrested. They're going to have to have faith as Jesus is whipped and scourged and beaten and put on a sham trial. They're going to have to have faith that He'll keep all His promises as He's crucified like a common criminal and laid in a tomb. On the horizon of Mark has always been the cross, and now this expression of faith needs to be greater than just, wow, look at a tree. It needs to be able to take on the significant change that's about to take place as massive, stone-hued, historically significant third construction of Solomon's temple is going to be torn down in a generation because it won't be needed anymore because Jesus will take the place of the temple in fact, he already has. This mountain will be moved. I think there's eschatological implications, things pertaining to the end of all things, where the mountain will be the center point of uh, the culmination of redemptive history, when this mountain will be uh, exalted, Isaiah 2.2, or Micah 4.1, But its initial exaltation will be as the point of Jesus' contact, making atonement for sin, and it will be the place of Jesus' return on the Mount of Olives and then to rule and reign over his people. But Jesus is going to put this system out of business. The original locus of their faith was supposed to be in God. And Jesus says to them, your faith needs to be in God. And so Jesus has already said, believe in God and John, and then said, also believe in me. And he's showing them that their faith needs to be centered and grounded and founded on Jesus. And the Lord's house, before it would ever be exalted, would be I mean, the language of verse 23, be taken up and cast into the sea. Where have we heard that in Mark? Cast into the sea? Two times. When Jesus threw a bunch of demons into the sea by way of a herd of pigs, and when he warned false teachers that if you dare lead another believer astray, especially a younger believer, a childlike believer... It would be better for a millstone to be tied around your neck and you to be what? Thrown into the sea. This mountain taken up and cast into the sea. I just think there's more than just a proverbial statement about you know mountains to molehills or mountains are big. This mountain. Everything happening in the context is pointed towards the temple, and the temple becomes the scene of the next two chapters as Jesus points to the end of the temple and promises its destruction. And uh, when Jesus said back in John 2.18, when the Jews asked him for a sign for all that he was doing in the first cleansing of the temple, Jesus answered them and said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days? But John comments, he was talking about the temple of his body. And therefore, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The new order is based entirely on faith. Faith in Christ. The center of everything to come will return to its original intention as when God called his servant Abraham and Abraham followed God by faith. Abraham didn't have a temple He didn't have a tabernacle. He didn't have an Ark of the Covenant. And though God's people would come to treat that stuff like a lucky rabbit's foot, they'd miss the point when their faith shifted from God himself to the ritual, the tradition, and the liturgy. There was nothing wrong with the ritual, tradition, and liturgy in and of themselves. They were invented by God. Tradition isn't bad on its own. But Jesus shows that He is the center of this new order based on faith. Second, verse 23, the new order is going to be seen to accomplish the impossible. To accomplish the impossible. It will overcome impossible odds. uh, These things that are are so beyond the, the small cursing of this fig tree, this movement of mountain to sea. And Jesus explains it by saying, when you say to the mountain... Be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in your heart, but believe what he says is going to happen. It will be granted to him. Wow. What's going on here? Well, maybe it feels a little bit name it and claim it to you, right? And in isolation, if this passage is the only passage we had on prayer, Maybe that is exactly how you should think. But you've got to remember that Jesus is trying to move their attention away from tradition, liturgy, temple. I mean, the prophecy that that Jesus is basing this whole thing off of, we talked about it last week, is Jeremiah 7. And the people are in outright rebellion against God and they just keep saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And Jesus is saying, have your faith in me, fix your eyes on me. Their faith signifies that Jesus needs to be the object of their faith and not the temple. And when that happens, far greater things will take place. Greater than the the ritualistic sacrifice that's been going on for centuries, greater than Israel hoarding the blessings and benefits of knowing Yahweh. What's going to happen is Christ will be lifted up and exalted and the temple will not become a place of prayer for all nations Jesus' people, his body, that temple will become a place of prayer for all nations because all nations will be drawn to him. It's that kind of impossibility that Jesus wants his disciples to direct their great faith towards. Because faith is the opposite of doubt, verse 23. Faith is the opposite of fear to trust Jesus despite everything that they're going to see with their eyes, despite everything that seems so illogical and irrational, to, to trust Jesus though dead and dying in front of them and then placed in a tomb that he will still fulfill all his promises in resurrection. Something beyond their expectation and beyond even their imagination is the kind of thing he's calling them to believe. This isn't a basis for you to pray for whatever it is you're trying to visualize and want selfishly. Wife. How's that going? James 4.3 tells us that when you ask according to God's will and with godly motives, First John 5.14 says we must pray according to God's will. And if our confidence is in God's power, which is what Jesus is trying to show His disciples, they need to trust in God and trust in Him and trust that what Jesus says will happen will happen. They need to believe this. There's a confidence that all prayers in this new order have in both the power of God and in submission to His will. Lots of Christians on television want you to have confidence in the power of God to accomplish whatever it is you will. But Jesus wants us to have confidence that when our will is aligned with his Father's will in heaven, that's how he taught his disciples to pray in Matthew 7, that's when prayer becomes in line with this new order a confidence in God's power and in submission to His will. It's why in chapter 14, verse 36, and He was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for You. Remove this cup from Me, yet not what I will, but what You will. Jesus understood that the boundaries around His prayers were the sovereign will of God. We need to realize that as well. This isn't some kind of focus on actualizing something that is unreal. This is a focus on the will of God. Submission in a radical way to the will of God. And that's the inevitable connection between faith and praying without doubt between faith and praying in a way that honors God's power and God's sovereignty and God's will, because it's faith that believes enough that we can actually ask our father and he will accomplish all his good purposes. So we pray according to our understanding of the will of God, and we ask according to a desire that's aligned with godly motives, and then we trust God with the results because Matthew 6, His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the kind of conviction that the new order has in prayer. Not in ritual, not in repetition, not in a liturgy, but in a vibrant attachment to Jesus by faith that knows that whatever God wants, even something wildly impossible, like the replacement of a century-old system of religious power and dominance with a resurrected man who is God a very God. That's the kind of impossibility I think that that Jesus is driving at. So number one, the new order is based on faith, verse 22. It overcomes seemingly impossible circumstances, verse 23. And what else is this new order that Jesus is instituting in the temple's place going to be marked by, verse 24? Well, it will be sustained by grace and grace alone. Look at what verse 24 says. Therefore, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you've received them and they'll be granted you. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who's in heaven will also forgive you for your transgressions. What's so amazing about this little section here is that Jesus links our praying and its effectiveness to the necessity of not just our faith in Jesus, but also the necessary attachment that we must have to grace, which is the basis for what he's about to talk about in forgiveness. All things for which you pray and ask, believe that you've received them and they'll be granted to you. Verse 24 sounds like lots of statements in John's Gospel. To just quickly consider some of those. So you know this isn't unusual for Jesus. John 14, verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Or John 15, verse 7 says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Or, verse 16 of that same chapter You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. Or, chapter 16, verse 23. In that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Still aligning our heartfelt desire to see the will of God accomplished, a conviction that God wants to hear from his children, that he wants to fulfill the desires of our hearts and he wants those desires to be aligned with God's will and expressed to God in faith. Faith believes enough to actually ask God. Not just spin your tires and thinking about the impossible circumstances, not just kind of muttering about, well, I know he's sovereign, but I know he's sovereign, but ask bold prayers. Ask bold prayers that are in line with the will of God. In other words, you can't ask for something that's not God's will, not a reflection of, of God's goodness. You can't ask for something sinful or evil. But you ask God in faith, in belief, Centered on Him, rooted in the conviction that He will accomplish all His work and all His words will be fulfilled. And this faith has a certainty in God's character, His loyalty, His love, His faithfulness that overcomes all our weaknesses and our stumbling. Whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. The expression here and the language of that expression, it's in the aorist tense in Greek. He talks like it's done. It's so sure. It's so certain that you can pray so boldly when you're praying in the will of God, like it's already accomplished. Again, this isn't prayer that's trying to visualize or some kind of new age expression of claiming an unreality to bring it manifest. Is that, did I use good new language? I'm from New Mexico, so we have crystals and stuff. Uh, that's not what's being described. That bold certainty that it's as good as done when we pray for the accomplishment of God's purposes when we pray for the inevitable success of Christ's church, when we pray for God's work in us to be made complete in Christ Jesus, when we pray prayers full of faith and boldness, Trusting God's will, expressing that everything that God desires in the future will come to pass without fail because he's so faithful and he's so trustworthy that we can pray in the past tense. Thank you, God, that you will ultimately and ultimately be glorified on heaven and in earth in me and through me for all eternity is a bold prayer of faithfulness that's fixed on God's character and in alignment and conformity and submission to his will. That's the kind of prayer Jesus is preparing his disciples for because their prayers before involved so much more. The whole city's preparing for a day of atonement. A day to ensure that God will hear their prayers for another year. A day to remind them of the necessity of blood sacrifice. And of all the ways that they're separated from God, a movement from court to court to Holy of Holies by the priestly class to demonstrate the distance they have from God and that distance in just a week's time will be gone forever for all who trust in Jesus. That's what he's aiming at. And it's based entirely in grace. Finally, it's characterized by forgiveness. Verse 25. Whenever you stand praying, you can stand when you pray if you'd like. Forgive. And if anything against anyone, so your Father who's in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. Interesting, isn't it? The necessity of forgiveness. If you would like God to hear your prayers, those kind of bold God-centered, submissive to God's will, confident in God's power kind of prayers, then you can't have some kind of grievance that you're hanging on to against somebody else. Remember C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity, everybody thinks forgiveness is a good idea until he has something to forgive. In other words, it's like forgiving me, that should be easy, right? But when I have to extend forgiveness to somebody else, that's the challenge. And Jesus takes forgiveness so seriously because it's based in grace and because it's based in God's forgiveness of us and our forgiveness of others are tied together in an inseparable chain. And so you can't be asking God for something like forgiveness if you're not willing to grant something like forgiveness. And... To put it in such stark words in verse 25, that you will not be forgiven. What does that mean? Well, if you're not forgiven, then you're condemned. You're lost. You're going to hell if you're not forgiven. Is the basis of your forgiveness your forgiveness of someone else? I thought the basis of my forgiveness is God's forgiveness of me, faith in Christ, that the gospel, is this not like a work salvation being depicted here? Jesus is simply saying, if you're not willing to forgive, it calls into question whether or not you've been forgiven. Believe the gospel, the gospel that says Jesus died in your place to purchase forgiveness full and free for your sins and to take the penalty that was due to you on Him, undeserving Lamb of God, that should automatically cause us overwhelmed by the debt of our forgiveness to be willing to forgive others. This is that parable in Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew 18, isn't it? A king forgives a servant a debt of 10,000 talents. Big money, unthinkable amount of money, more than you could ever imagine. And as soon as his debt's forgiven, he goes and chokes a dude out who owes him 20 bucks. It's not appropriate. What's the king do? Finds the guy he forgave a debt to and throws him. Now, if I remember that, that passage correctly, at one point in the parable, he throws him into prison. And I think a verse later, he's in hell. So Jesus' parable just breaks down, right? It's like starting with prison, and then it's like, and he's burning. Whoa, the parable wheels came off. That's what will happen to anyone who doesn't forgive from the heart. An unforgiving hard heart towards other people and the way that they've wronged you and the things that they owe to you. All of that is proof that the gospel has not taken root in your own heart, that you haven't understood the weight and power and freedom that comes with forgiveness that God brings to you. So we ought to forgive others. Because on the horizon of this passage, just a few days time as Jesus goes in and out Of Jerusalem, and the conflict with the religious leaders is heightened, and his disciples are becoming more anxious, and Judas is plotting against him, and the road to Calvary is clearer and clearer. They already need to have in their sight the cross, the place of forgiveness, the place where all debts will be settled. And if the debt that we owe to God is settled at the cross of Christ, then every other debt that anyone owes to us should be really easy to forgive. And so we have faith that God can accomplish the impossible, that all of it will be sustained by His grace, and that this new order will be marked by The forgiveness of sins. And I think I just want to ask you this as you think about your own forgiveness towards other people and the forgiveness that that God grants you in the gospel. Do you have assurance in your own standing before God? I'm asking you. That's based on nothing but the gospel. Because if the basis of our forgiveness of others is that forgiveness that God gave to us, the basis of everything that we have in Christ should be on the basis of the gospel. And if it's not, you're probably holding on to some man-made false religion. Jesus dissolves the fig tree because He's going to dissolve the temple. And He calls His people to audacious and impossible faith and forgiveness because only God can do that. These religious people that Jesus is clearing out of the temple had loved the trappings of religion, the traditions of religion, but they've edged out God himself. And so I'm asking you, have you done that? Is your religion more important to you than Jesus? Is your assurance in the gospel or is it in being a member of this church or involved in acts of service or in that you're doing a better job than you used to do? Because that's the same as just going to the temple and buying some doves and enjoying a what would have been a really fun Jewish party and ignoring the Christ. Is He at the center of your life and your assurance? Father, I pray that that would be the case. That the forgiveness that we find in, in Jesus flows out from us. And encourages us towards bold prayers that are centered on faith, not in a system, not in tradition, not in ritual, not in religion, but faith in God. I thank you for the glory and greatness of Jesus. He's he's greater than that amazing temple, He's more certain, more accessible. He's flung the doors of heaven wide open that all might come in and be assured of forgiveness because of His grace. So, Father, help us to pray boldly in conformity to Your power and Your will. Thank You, God, for who You are and how You've revealed Yourself to us in Jesus. In His name, Amen.